From the studios of Teeing It Up in the Swamps of Jersey, this is Teeing It Up with Jeremy Schilling for Sunday, May 19th, 2019. We welcome back to the show uh, to talk mainly the NBA, uh, Mr. Jordan Brickman. Hello, sir. Hey, Jeremy. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. Um, But we have to start with this. you joined an AAU team as an assistant coach, uh, became the temporary head coach this weekend, and in your first coaching experience of your life, what you sent me had my jaw dropping. So tell the folks out there what happened. Yeah, so first game in a, a tournament, we have a, a, a day of with three games in, th- in three hours, and the first game wound up going to quadruple sudden death overtime. Um, which we wound up winning uh, on a walk-off free throw about 10, 10 seconds into the into the fourth overtime. Um, pretty pretty wild day. We we wound up going two and one. The third game was also pretty raucous environment. Uh, parents screaming, players pushing each other, a really loud crowd. I'm really proud of my guys to come out with a with a two point victory. And uh, we should be playing in the championship today at about at about six p.m. Get a chance to get some revenge against. Uh, the team that beat us, the, the allegedly the best shooter in Staten Island, according to the referee, um, was the team that beat us. So we got to make sure we run him off of his, his three-point line and, and make him uncomfortable. All right. So you didn't say the sudden death part yesterday, so I have to drill down on this. So you're saying that a AAU basketball team went to over a basketball game, went to overtime, and there was no points scored? There was no, well, no, the, there wasn't sudden death until the fourth one. Oh, okay. Um, all right, all right, sorry. Okay, that, 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 that's the part that can... Conf- there was one full overtime of no points scored because the overtimes were, um, they started at two minutes and then they went to one minute. There was one full overtime of no baskets. So these are two-minute overtimes? Yep, until, the, until the, I think the third one went to one minute and then the fourth one is just, you know, kind of unlimited time just whoever scores, basically. And somebody got fouled on your team. They made the first foul shot or the second foul shot, and that was it. Correct. Yeah, it was a thankfully hit the first, so we were there was no pressure at that point. That was that is bizarre. So here you are. You have to coach three games in in, in three hours, essentially. You know, just just as a broad base here, and you go four overtimes. Now, you, now, granted, this is not NBA overtime. This is not NHL overtime. Where 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 we're going all over the place, but. I mean, your guys must have been exhausted by the second game. Yeah, we had so we had an hour break in between the first and second game, um, and they definitely came out flat uh, in the second game, and that definitely hurt us, I think, in that game. And then we ran right from the second game to the third game, and even after losing the second game, I was like, guys, look, we're loose, we're ready to go. The team we're about to play has been sitting, so let's let's kind of jump out hot um, and try to get a big lead. And that's what happened. We kind of we up to like a twelve point lead to start the game. Um, so it's, it's kind of just about, you know, when you sit is when you really kind of lose your energy. So, uh, I mean, it was good that the last two games were kind of back-to-back. But uh, these kids are 15 years old, so they're ready to run forever and ever. We had a 10-man bench yesterday, too, um, which has, you know, positives and negatives to it. It's hard to kind of get everyone in the rhythm. But you're able to sit guys for a minute or two just to let them catch their breath. Um, you're a diehard fan of two teams. I'm a diehard fan of a bunch of things. I hate the calls refs make. I, I, I disagree with stuff. I get mad. I get pissed. How, how Do you have a newfound respect for bad coaching decisions now that you've been a coach for a day? Uh, yeah, yes and no. I mean, it, it's kind of hard to say, right? Like there is 
one play I wanted to get into the overtimes where it was like 18 seconds left and I wanted, we were tie game and I wanted the guys to hold the ball for a final shot on screaming, you know, hold the ball, hold the ball. And my, one of my guards breaks down the defense and gets actually gets a decent dump off pass to our big in the paint. Um, who winds up missing the shot, he gets fouled, and they don't call it, misses the shot. They actually wind up getting a, a, a shot at the end of the buzzer, which they missed. But uh, as I thought back on it, I was like, wow, I probably should have called the timeout there because I see that he's going to attack, he's not holding the ball back, and I had the opportunity to call a timeout and stop that from happening. But there's also the aspect of me that says, let's attack, let's attack the defense when they're not ready for us and try to get a quick, and like, if we have a good shot, we should take it. Um, so it's, it's, kind of, it's, it's interesting how, like, you, you know, you, the decisions you make or don't make you know, impact the game in, in, in both ways. Um, so, so it was definitely an interesting experience. And it's, I'll tell you what, the great feeling when you sub someone in because they have, let's say, a, a good shooter and they shoot, they hit a three immediately. That is one of the best. That's one of the best feelings that happened a few times yesterday. That that feel like you really push the right buttons in that scenario. So, um, yeah, it's just kind of about you know sometimes what you do could affect the game. Sometimes what you do doesn't have any impact at all. So. Uh, it's always kind of an interesting balance for sure. Final uh, question about th- this AAU uh, situation. Um, uh, do these games have a shot clock? No shot clock, which is a game we lost uh, with like three minutes and 30 seconds left. They started just holding the ball for like minutes at a time, basically, which is pretty frustrating. Um, and the, the other issue is that it's not one on one until the 10th foul. So we always have at the end of the game like seven fouls to give. So that always drags the game out a little bit too. So yeah. um, def- definitely frustrating. I attended a high school game like three years ago for the first time since I was in high school and I forgot how much of a difference the shot clock makes. Mm-hmm. It is totally dramatic. We're talking to Jordan Brooklyn here on Teeing It Up. All right, let's look at these four teams left in the NBA Conference uh, Finals. And let's first look, I, I think. If you had said Raptors, Warriors, NBA Finals to start the season, I think that would have been expected. So let's look at the other two teams that have gotten there, um, and, and, and maybe Bucks, Warriors in some people's minds. But let's start with the Bucks. They're up 3 nothing in this series against Toronto. Uh, sorry, 2 nothing in this series. Game 3 is tonight. Did you expect... Milwaukee to sweep at home and what do you think has been the difference that has let Milwaukee get to this point um you know and and be by far the the better team the first two games yeah I I, I did think that the Bucks were dominating people all year um for any team up this many games in the playoffs so far for for their wins they just been dominating everyone they had a they had the best point differential in the regular season this year, so I did expect them to kind of run through the Raptors. I thought the Celtics would be a harder series, and they clearly ran through them as well. There's something in the something in the water in Boston, probably. But yeah, um, I think that the the whole key is that I mean, the first game Giannis didn't play that great, and the, and the role players really stepped up. So so that's really exciting for them in the long term that they don't necessarily have to have Giannis. Um, play amazing to, to win games against good teams. Um, but the second game, Giannis was just unstoppable. You know, he's just bigger, faster, stronger than everyone out there. He seems to always make the right decision, whether it be the, to, to pass it off or to try to finish it. Um, and everyone is too, is too small for him. You know, he, he, he's, when he's bringing the ball to the floor that Mike Woodenholz's offense he's created around him is all about you know, dribble drive for Giannis and pass it out for three with good with good shooters and creators around him. And and you know, my concern with the Bucks going into the playoffs was, you know, when when Giannis is struggling, will Eric Bledsoe, will Chris Middleton, Brook Lopez, Miritich, will these guys be consistent enough on a day to day basis to 
to kind of pull them to that next year of teams. So far, they have been. Uh, Malcolm Brogdon coming back and starting to play a little well, getting his legs under him as well is a huge addition. Um, they're just a well-coached team that's really hard to stop because when Giannis is going downhill, there's pretty much no one in the NBA that can stop him. So I'm excited to see them close out the series in four or five games and, and see what happens when they put Giannis at the five against the Warriors. You know, that's what I was going to ask. Getting Brogdon back, I remember when Brogdon went, went back, it was really uncertain of that if, if he was going to be able to contribute anything during the playoffs. Now getting sea legs under him when you have a big series lead and then having more rest time, hypothetically, if they win this in, in, in four or five games, when the NBA Finals has a dead set start date that can't be moved up, it's May 30th no matter what. Um, that's a huge advantage when it comes to Brogdon to be able to get his sea legs and then reset. Absolutely. I do get worried about teams that have to sit for a while. You know, you don't really want to have a team to have to sit for, uh, you know, whatever it is, ten, especially 10 days, I guess not 10 days, but uh, eight or nine days uh, between between their, final, their last game and the, play, and the finals. But the Warriors are probably going to be in the same situation. Yeah. It's going to be sitting around for a week. So both teams will get to be well-rested. You know, who knows, we'll see if KD and Boogie are back in time. But uh, if KD is out, I expect that the Bucks to really give them a strong run for their money. Um, and we'll see what kind of player KD and Boogie are when, when they do make it back, if they do. Brogdon was a plus 15 uh, in Game 2 um, the other night. Um, all right, as we look at Toronto here, what's been the problem? Is it just Giannis is better than anybody else, or is Toronto not doing something um, as well as they did against Philly, even though that did go to seven games, obviously, and it took a heroic shot from Kawhi. But, but what's been the difference here that has just led to two dominant victories versus winnable games um, in the previous series for the Sixers? Well, the big thing with Toronto is that, I don't know if you saw the on-off, on-off stats for, for Kawhi, but the offense is something like a plus 120 with Kawhi. Um, in the game, and like a plus, and like a, and like a, they're scoring 120 points per 100 possessions, or they're scoring like 60 points when he's out of the game. So it's like a massive drop off uh, for them offensively when he leaves the game. So then you really need guys like Lowry, Gasol, Ibaka, Siakam to to, to kind of pick up the slack there. And Siakam and Gasol have been non-factors. Lowry had a good game game one. Um, and, but he's kind of inconsistent generally, especially come postseason time. So they really need guys like, like Siakam in particular, I think, is a key for them. Because if you have Siakam and Kawhi going off, that, that makes it difficult to guard the rest of the team. So um, that, that's what I think that the X factor is for them. But defensively, they also haven't been very strong. You know, the Bucks have been able to, to enforce their will as, as needed. So um, I, think it, I think it's those kind of role players not carrying their load on offense. And their defense also hasn't been up to par so far. Portland getting there um, and getting to the conference finals obviously made made uh, you know was was nice for CJ McCollum to be able to rub in uh, Jennifer's face. But uh, humor aside, uh, that's a heck of an accomplishment for that team. What did they do right in the run up to this series that got them to that point? Because I think a lot of people were looking at the Warriors and then Houston. And then the Lakers, depending on, on how LeBron and his weird cast of characters reacted, I'm not sure a lot of people had Portland circled as the team to, to face the Warriors in the Western Conference Finals. No, definitely not, especially not after they're, they're, they're getting swept. Uh, yeah. Two seed. Uh, you know, people definitely wrote them off. Um, what has really stuck out to me about the, the Trailblazers is their role players. You know, Rodney Hood in that what was a triple overtime game coming off the bench coming in and I think he had eight points or seven points in the in the that in that overtime. Um, Seth Curry has given them a huge boost. 
Cantor, who has been a non-factor against the Warriors, but played it excellent against the Nuggets. Um, you know, despite all the Knicks chatter around it happening, but uh, he played he played very well, getting some real tough minutes against the, against the Nuggets. Um, and, and, and Mo Harkless has been giving them good minutes. And then CJ McCollum in the, in the against the Nuggets really had some incredible games where he really just kind of hit every shot he needed to hit. You know, Lillard I think has, has been a little mentally spent because I think he put so much into beating Westbrook and the Thunder in that first round. He played incredible in that first round. It seems like he's maybe a little emotionally tired from that and physically tired, too. And he's been struggling. There's a report that he has separated ribs that came out today. Uh, I'm sure that's impacting him. And the Warriors have just done an incredible job on him defensively because that's kind of what they do to take away your best player. Uh, but then, but then it's really just those role players. You know, We're talking about how the Raptors are struggling because their role players um, and their starters are not stepping up. And the Trailblazers' starter, role players were stepping up, at least in the last round. And uh, they've played well. They've let two games slip away from them in the series. You know, the series can very easily beat 2-1 Portland. Uh, but those fourth quarters and second halves, that's when the Warriors always kind of step up to another level. And, and the, the Trailblazers have not been able to meet that challenge in the second half. But they, they started off well. It's just about maintaining it for 48 minutes. And, and that's where they've struggled so far. This is, you know, when I was writing out what I wanted to talk about on this podcast, I think a lot of us thought when when Durant went down, this is an Achilles. All right, it's not an Achilles, it's a calf. But the road's going to be tougher for them. And the Warriors, just by the snap of a finger, reverted back to the old Warriors. And this has been a fun team. And you've got Iggy stepping up, you know, certain times. You've got Draymond, for example, last night putting up 20 and and uh, 13 and 12 um, in 38 minutes and being a huge force defensively with four steals and a block. Um, it, it just, it's, it's been bizarre, honestly. To, this is like I'm watching a repeat of a TV show from, from three, four years ago. This is crazy. It's definitely been impressive how they immediately adjusted and have and Clay and Steph, and, but not even Clay and Steph again, just kind of seeing here of the role players. Draymond Green has been been incredible in, the, in this round. Uh, Kevon Looney randomly having big games. Um, McKinney off the bench is, 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 is giving them quality minutes. Jordan Bell had double digit points in the game. Um, it's just amazing. Jarebko. Next, next, next man up. Yeah. Uh, Jarebko and. and Jarebko. Yep, and even Sean Livingston has not had his best playoff run here. Um, he, he's, he's stepped up too. All right, this is this is where we get very radio showish, but I, I have to get your thoughts on this. Are the Warriors better without Durant, and do you think this has any impact on what Kevin Durant does in the off season? I think they are definitely not better without Kevin Durant. Um, the, the the big difference here is so people are like, oh, they've gotten the style of basketball they're playing is so beautiful now. It's so much more fluid without Kevin Durant. Cool, just because you have a more uh, aesthetically pleasing style of basketball does not make you a better team. Yeah. Having Kevin Kev, having Kevin Durant on the team um, allows their margin of error to be wider. So Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, if these guys are having bad games um, without Kevin Durant, it's a bigger impact than if they do have Kevin Durant on the team. At the end of the day, Kevin Durant can go get you a bucket whenever you need. Steph is, Steph is close to that category as well, but Durant is the most unguardable player in the NBA. Is arguably the best player in the NBA, if not top, if not top one, top two. Um, sure, their style of basketball may be a little more one-on-one and may not be as fluid and fun to watch, but they are, <coughs> excuse me, they are definitely 100% better with Kevin Durant. He's also a very strong defender, too. So they should be better both offensively and defensively with them all there. And what's kind of interesting is you see how much these guys sacrifice 
having Durant on the team, right? Clay Thompson, Draymond Green has been totally unlocked without Kevin Durant on the on the on the roster, but they are definitely better with Kevin Durant on the team. I am with you totally. I think the point that is that has not been talked about as much is that um, Steph Curry is hitting his shots again. If you go back um, to Game Four of the conference semis, forty-eight percent from the field, thirty-nine, forty-five, fifty-two, fifty, forty-two. He's hitting more of his shots. There's yes, he's obviously had to step up and he's taken on a bigger role and he's getting more opportunities since Kevin went out. But he's also hitting his shots, which he wasn't, you know, just just not yeah. the best yet. I think with with Durant out, Clay has really, you know, Steph Steph is is you know almost always hot. Pretty much wakes up hot. He'll have one or two bad games in a row generally, but nothing too too long. But Clay has really gotten played played much better since Durant's gotten out. He struggled in that series against the Rockets, and as soon as Durant went down, he had a really nice game uh, game six, and he's kind of carried that over to to the, the Western Conference Finals. So he's really been a key to that for sure. Yes, and and Clay stepping up too. And, and it just, it brings back the fact that they have so many different options and so many different um, ways that they can, um, ways that they can attack you, ways that they can hurt you. And then they get points from, from guys you don't expect. And it's like, what the heck's happening here? Yeah, if you go back, Clay's had 27, 27, 26, 24, 19 since Durant went down. How is Andre Iguodala this good this late in his career? I mean, he basically won them game two. The guy keeps doing this every year. What has he did? Has he taken up the Tom Brady method of longevity? This is remarkable. This is a former NBA MVP. Yeah, I mean, he's been, he's been a huge factor for them. He's another one of those guys that when the, when the lights are the brightest, he's going to step up and he's going to make a big play. It seems like he shoots 30% from three during the regular season or whatever he shoots, and in the playoffs, it seems like he gets 50% of his shots from three. Um, you know, it, it's incredible how he just kind of steps up. It, for him, I think it's all about understanding your, your opponent and mental preparation and studying. I, I did watch a breakdown of him defending, uh, him like talking about defending the best best perimeter players in the NBA just a couple of years ago. And now he knows down to the T, uh, he was talking about Melo, how Melo likes to do a little jab and then do like a one dribble step back pull up in the mid range and how he knows exactly the timing on how to guard that. Uh, he's just incredible at, guard, at guarding the best wing players in the NBA and knowing their, their tendencies what they're good at, what their what their weaknesses are, if they have weaknesses, that's just why he's in the NBA and why he's um, such a savvy player for this team because he doesn't need the ball. He knows exactly what his role is, and that's to guard probably their best wing player or one of their best wing players if Clay's not guarding that person. Um, to pass the ball around, and when they leave him open to hit an open shot, he needs to do that. Uh, and him, and, and that's a very similar role for Draymond as well. And those two guys, just when they need to, they, they get the job done. 38 minutes in that game six against Houston where he, where he went five of eight from three and had 17 points. There you go. All right, we're talking to Jordan Brickman here, and we now have to make a turn to a depressing topic because it just always seems that way with the Knicks lottery um, that did not go their way. And everybody, is, as you pointed out to me the other day, it's, 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 it's signed, sealed, written, etched in stone, R.J. Barrett um, going there. So your, your lottery thoughts and then... We talked about this off air the other night, but just as you've studied RJ, kind of just your overall picture on him and, and how he compares to recent Nick draft picks and, and what you think his NBA potential could be. Yeah, so, I mean, obviously there's, there's immediate disappointment that we don't get Zion, right? That's kind of the first reaction everyone's 
you know, frustrated and annoyed that we don't get the number one pick, which was openly a long shot, right? We knew the exact odds of that happening. Yes. Um, going going into the top four, we had the best odds of the remaining teams, so there's definitely some some uh, optimism there. But ending up at the three, you know, it's definitely Zion is in, is in one tier. I think Ja is slightly, Ja Moran is slightly below Zion, and then I think RJ is slightly below Ja, and then I think it's everybody else in the draft. Um, so at least we're in that top that top bucket, right? So that's that's a positive that's a positive uh, step that happened there. Um, RJ, I've been kind of hating on him all season. Um, the little bit I've watched of him and the different highlights I've seen of him, he's made he's not a good, he's not a good three point shooter statistically. He's not a good free throw shooter. He's not good at the rim. He's very lefty dominant, and he tends to force um, he has tunnel vision and tends to force his offense. Those are all really, really some things that are going to be improved. Some things that maybe, maybe can't. Um, what he did put up was a twenty-two, seven and four first freshman to, to ever do that. Um, did shoot forty-five percent overall from the field. There's definitely a body of work to work with here. He's a flu. He's, he's a, a fluid athlete. Very good in transition. Seems like he projects as a, as a strong defender at two. Playmaking guy. Steve Nash is, is his god. Is a step uh, godfather, which I think is. Uh, an underrated aspect of him. His dad would play in the NBA. Um, and I've definitely, I'm kind of in this position now where I have to sell myself on RJ Barrett as a Knicks fan. I'm contractually obligated to do so. Um, and, and basically, what, I, what I'm seeing is a guy that has potential, more polished than Knox, more polished than Neil Aquina from the last few years. Um, so he can definitely come in and help right away, I think. And he also, his, his theoretical skill set is something that the Knicks need, which is a guy that can, on the wing, who's, who's got some size to him that can play make. You know, Kevin Knox is not a playmaker. He's definitely he's a pure scorer. Um, he, he's not, and he's not an official one of that, at least not yet. Um, so they needed a guy that's a secondary ball handler that can bring the ball up the floor, break down the defense, and, and look to make plays. Um, so that he, in that sense, he fits, he fits the team. Uh, we just got to hope that he can figure out that three-point shot. His form doesn't look too awful, but the, the statistics are, are disappointing at, the, at this point. Um, but you got to hope the NBA game more wide open. Um, it will, will, will fit his needs as, as he grows and, and his game develops. Only 18 years old, obviously. I think he was one of the youngest players in the country this year, I believe. So um, a lot, a lot of room to grow, obviously. And 22-7-4 is, is pretty impressive numbers uh, at the college level. Um, all right, what's your current view on Kyrie, KD, AD? AD, I think it's really hard to know. Um, I'll, I'll start with him. Um, it, it, it's... There was that report that came out to the Lakers uh, that the Pelicans owner said she won't trade Anthony Davis to the Lakers over her over their dead body. He's <laughs> since refuted that report. There's only a couple teams really I could see him going to: Boston, New York, and the Lakers. I don't think Boston really makes any sense. I think that roster, who coming into the season looked like they had, um, you know, an embarrassment of riches, suddenly does not look that way. Kyrie's leaving. Gordon Hayward was a shell of himself this year. Tatum still obviously a great prospect, but had a down year. Jalen Brown's a nice player, but past that, there's not much on that team. So if you're going to trade everybody on that team to get Anthony Davis, he's going to be in the same situation as the Pelicans where he's playing with nobody. So he'll have some, some salary cap wiggle room to maybe sign some guys, but I don't think that team is, makes the most sense for him. I, he's already said he doesn't want to resign there because they the Thomas stuff. So I don't think they're going to be in the running. So that brings us to the Knicks and the Lakers. They, obviously, it sounds like Dan Gilbert wants to convince Anthony Davis to stay. Um, 
with the Pelicans, but I think that's not going to happen, and he's going to want to trade. And the Knicks can make as a competitive offer as anybody. They can offer, obviously, RJ, repackage him up with, with Zion, teammates in college, obviously. You can include Knox, who had a down year, but was a first-round pick, obviously. He's very young. If they have to, they might need to include Mitchell Robinson. They have a bunch of these first-round picks from the Chris Pazingas trade. So I think the Knicks and the Lakers are definitely the top two teams. I do think that Lonzo Ball will be a, would be a great fit next to Zion. Uh, so if I'm the Pelicans, I'm looking into that. I think the key for that conversation is if Brandon Ingram is healthy, because uh, he's obviously someone that they're going to want to uh, potentially trade for in that trade. And if he's not healthy, then that could be a huge, a huge problem for them. So I think it's those two teams. I do think he's going to get traded. Um, I have a feeling he's going to go to the Lakers, but but we'll see. Uh, Kevin Durant, I think Kevin Durant and, Ky- and Kyrie are both leaving their respective teams. I think that's pretty clear, especially with Kyrie. I think Kyrie's definitely gone. Um, and I think it sounds like the Knicks are in the running for KD. I don't really know where he's going to go, if not the Knicks. Um, he can obviously stay, but I just don't see that happening. Uh, and, and I'm pretty confident at this point that just from all the different reports and body language and things like that that we've seen this year, that Durant probably going to come to the Knicks. You know, there's been some murmurs about the Nets, but I don't think it makes sense for them to sign Kyrie with the narrative of D'Angelo Russell. Kyrie's obviously a better player, but you don't really want to disrupt what's been working for them, I don't think. Um, and if they want to play together, and if you maybe factor in a guy like Anthony Davis onto that into that, uh, that team, then, then the Knicks are the place to do it. So there's definitely a lot of optimism right now. It's almost a shame that we have this potential delusion because the Knicks are building kind of an interesting team right now, right, with a bunch of different prospects, a ton of cap space. They have uh, six, they have seven first-round picks over the next like, five years, I believe. So they are kind of an interesting team from a rebuilding standpoint. And uh, with the snap of a finger, that might go all out the window. It might go for broke this year. So it, it, it's going to be fascinating to see what happens. And also, you would lose someone like Mitchell Robinson in that, you know, trade, which has been such a you know productive uh, defensive player for you. I I think I I think to me this comes down to, um, you know, do you trust Kyrie? You know, wh- what the heck is up with Kyrie? I have no idea, you know, what Kyrie's mind thinks at any given moment. But to me, I I. I, something tells me Katie's gonna stay. I, I don't. I, I don't know why I think that, but I just have. I, I just don't know if I trust Kyrie on my team or if he'll just be a a problem person the entire year. That's my issue. Yeah, I, I don't know. It's such a. It's, this was such a weird year for him. You know, there were some reports that teams are thinking exactly what you just said. He didn't play well in the playoffs either. Um, so that, that's definitely something in the back of people's minds. He didn't handle the media well. So if he's going to come to New York, have his attitude, the media might eat him alive. Um, you know, I think you got to hope that he was the guy on Boston, right? He's the, the all-star, best player on the team. He was the guy. I think it's, it's pretty clear that Kyrie wants to be the second guy. Maybe he's taking the final shot or maybe he's, you know, a big part of the offense, but he doesn't want to be – the number one guy to take the to take the the blame, right? So that's why he he called LeBron and apologized for his behavior, and that's who Kevin Durant would be in New York. Kevin yeah. Durant would be the guy. Um, so so I I would hope that that would be the scenario uh, that that would help him kind of focus more on hey I'm a I'm a great point guard I'm a scorer um, I'll distribute when necessary but I'm happy here because I, Durant can take the heat when the heat is needed to be taken um, and I can kind of just play my game and not to worry about. Um, you know, the whole part of the offense being the distribution offense with playing with these, these young 
players that haven't fully developed their game, don't know what it takes to win. He doesn't have to worry about having to deal with, with that as much because Durant's going to fall on him, his shoulders. So uh, that's kind of what, I, what I'm thinking in my head. Um, we'll see. There's definitely... He's also got some injury concerns with him long-term, like with his knee. He's not the most physically gifted guy. He's obviously got incredible handles and an incredible ability to finish, but he's not jumping out of the rim and dunking and, and things like that. So a little bit of a, a knee issue could, could really kind of sack him of his abilities long-term. So um, definitely some red flags there for sure, but he's the kind of guy, he's the kind of talent that you just have to take on your team if he's available, especially for he's, he's, his game is tailor-made play at Madison Square Garden with those crossovers and those moves. The crowd will be going nuts for him. He's from the area. I think you just got you just got to bring him in. We're talking to Jordan Brickman here on Teeing It Up. All right, I don't want to spend the last 90 seconds talking about the Mets. I want to ask you this instead. What's the deal with Old Town Road? How, how did this go from being a song to now like a thing? Please explain this to me. Well, I think it was kind of thrilling at the marketing they did. But, I mean, he's obviously an urban... I don't want to call him rapper, but call you know urban artist, um, and marketing it as a country song was brilliant because that just caused the start up so much controversy. Got people in his corner, and the song is just really catchy. And then when you bring on Billy Ray Cyrus, who has that country clout, kind of brought the song to another level as well. Um, I think people just really like that there's a black artist that has has been has made it a successful country song, um, and it's just getting more and more popular. I mean. It's, Certainly a darn catchy song, um, and it's just it just was, was brilliant marketing by by Lil Nas X and his team. Look at that. Sometimes it's just how you market a song like that can take it to new heights, and now it seems like Old Town Road's being played everywhere, left and right, uh, that you turn. Jordan Brickman, thank you, as always, for coming on Teeing It Up with Jeremy Schilling. Thanks so much, Jeremy. You got it, and thank you all for listening to this edition of Teeing It Up with Jeremy Schilling. We'll see you next time.